you have your Bible, uh, I would invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter uh, 3, or not Ephesians, I'm sorry, Philippians. Ephesians will be next week. Philippians is this week. Uh, we're going to end uh, today our little series in January on uh, spiritual growth. It's just a three-week series. Uh, we may go back to this topic actually in the summer. I'm thinking about that, maybe doing some more of these profiles uh, when we get to summertime. But next week we're going to start a longer series on the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to be in that book for quite a while and going into some detail uh, throughout the spring uh, all the way past Easter. Uh, but this morning I wanted to look at Paul. Uh, we've been uh, trying to highlight people who display what spiritual growth looks like. Uh, because if you're a Christian, it means you are meant to grow. The gift of spiritual life that God gave you is not just meant to sit there. Uh, it's supposed to be something that gets nourished and that gets developed. Uh, we saw Moses the first week, Ezra last week. We're going to look at Paul this week. Paul has a particular way, I think, of teaching us uh, that um, is especially important in our day, I think, uh, because the main thing we learn from Paul here is that he just knew how to press on. He knew how to just keep going with Jesus, uh, even when it was tough. And that's something I think we need, right? Just the ability to just keep going. And, and what does it take to keep going? Uh, so let me read to you, starting in verse 10. I want to know Christ, he says. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for the upward call uh, for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should think or should take such a view of, of things as this. And if, some, uh, and if on some point you think differently, on that too God will make it clear. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. This is God's word. Amen. Uh, there's a new Disney movie out. If you are a parent or grandparent of young kids, no doubt you've heard about it. You've probably heard people singing it. It's called Encanto. Uh, I've, I've seen it with my kids a couple times now. Uh, the story is about a Colombian family that has magical powers. Uh, track with me here. Uh, each of the family members has a magical power and they use it to um, serve the village around them. Except for the main character, Maribel. She's the main character, and when she has her ceremony, uh, all the kids in the family have a ceremony where they find out what their gift will be. Uh, basically, a magical door appears in their house when they're about nine years old, and they go up and open the door, and, and as they open it for the first time, they enter their room that has magically appeared, and when they walk into their room, they discover what their gift will be. But Maribel, when she was nine years old, touched the door handle, and the door disappeared. It went black. And there was no room for her. There was no magical power for her. And I, I liked the movie for this reason. The whole movie was about how certain things in life, when they happen, are very hard to move on from. 
because Maribel throughout her life struggled to move on from that. She was traumatized by it. She was the only one that didn't have a gift, she thought. And everybody else in the family was traumatized from it because, uh uh-oh, does this mean the magical powers are going to disappear forever for all of us? Well, what's going on here? Sometimes in our Christian life, it's not quite like that, of course. That's, that's a you know, silly, you know, fake story, right? But in real, actual life, things can happen as we follow Jesus that have that similar effect. It makes us wonder whether, is God really with me? Uh, am I really a person capable of growing, developing, advancing? Am I really going to make it to heaven? Is God, would God ever let me in and how would he? Uh, you know, Paul in, this, in the verses that I read to us is wrestling with all those things, but he's wrestling with them in a mature way rather than an immature way. In fact, he says that in verse 15. Every Christian who is mature, he says, should think the way I think on this point. You ought to adopt the same view of things that I have. And, here, and, and Paul's view is very simple. Growth involves pressing on with Jesus even when things happen in our lives that make us want to give up or want to question whether we can go on. And he gives us three things that we have to know and understand in order to do that. And so if you look at your bulletin, you'll see these three things outlined for us. Paul saw them with a maturity that we need to have. First of all, we need to see the right goal. Second, we need to see the real me. And lastly, we need to see the one pursuit. The right goal, the real me, and the one pursuit. Let's look first of all at the right goal. Did you notice how clear Paul was on what he was all about in life? Look again at verse 10. I mean, Paul is very plain in terms of what his mission statement in life is. He says it simply, I want to know Christ. I want to know him. That's it. That was the goal with a capital G. I'm sure Paul had other goals. In fact, we read about some of his other lowercase g goals in some of his other letters. I want to go to this place or that place or start a church here or there. But this was the big G goal that sort of over canopied all the other goals or undergirded as a foundation every other goal. I want to know Jesus. And for Paul, knowing Jesus wasn't just a pick and choose buffet. Uh, sometimes we want to make uh, spirituality like that, don't we? A spirituality buffet where I'll take this from Jesus, but not that. I don't like that part. That's, that's very uncomfortable to me. So I'm going to take this part, but not that part. And then I'll go over here from this other source and I'll take these things that I like, but not those things. And we, and we create almost like a spiritual smorgasbord in our lives. A lot of people do that. A lot of people say, you know, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And a lot of times what they mean is I'm, I'm basically just my own Lord. I'm picking and choosing things from various places. Paul would have none of that. He says, I met Jesus. I saw him with my own eyes, resurrected from the dead. And I'm tell you what, I want to know him in every part of who he is. I want all of him to be a part of all of me and all of my life. Even the parts that require suffering. Look at what he says. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. Of course I do. That's, that's, that's something that's very encouraging. But I also want participation in his sufferings. 
I want to share is what that word means. I want communion, literally the word, the word there is communion. I want communion in the sufferings of Jesus as well as communion in the power of his resurrection. I want to become like him in his death. I mean, think about the shock of that statement. At a time when people still saw folks getting crucified. At this time, crucifixion wasn't a past tense thing. It was happening on the roads outside of Philippi, in and out of that city. They saw people hanging on crosses regularly. And Paul says, I want to become like that. So that somehow, by any means possible, I might attain to the resurrection that Jesus attained after he was like that. In other words, give me all of Jesus and that'll be enough for me. Don't hold any part of Jesus back. Let all of Jesus affect deeply all of me. What Paul is describing here is a very important truth in the Bible. Very important idea about the Christian life. It's called union with Christ. Or communion with Christ. You could use both words. Union and communion with Christ. And it means this. When we become Christians, when we believe in Jesus and accept him as our Lord and Savior by grace, what happens is God actually marries us. He, he binds us to Jesus, ties us in with him. So that all that we are becomes his and all that he is becomes ours. There's this back and forth exchange between us and the Son of God, which is able to bring us into full adoption into the family of God. You know, Jesus is the Son of God with a capital S. And because sinners like us have union and communion by faith, we are sons with a lowercase s. We become fully adopted with all the rights and the privileges of children of God, but in union and communion, you can't pick and choose which parts you're interested in and which parts you're not interested in. That's the nature of a union and a communion with someone. It's like a marriage. It's like a marriage. Uh, you cannot just pick and choose the things about your spouse that you're going to relate to and then the things you're not going to relate to. You can try to do that, but it's going to adversely affect your relationship if you do. You got to take the whole person and you also have to give your whole person over to that person if you're going to be legitimately called married. And here it says, this is what it's saying. Paul says, that is my one goal. That is my capital G goal. That, that is the thing that I'm aiming at in every other thing that I do. Now notice, or answer this question if you can. How big is that goal, would you say? Is it small or is it big? Huge, expansive. To know Christ and all that he is, unbelievably large. It's not a tiny, puny goal. And here's why that's important. If we're going to learn how to be a people who grow spiritually, we have to press on. If we're going to press on and continue going and not get caught in things that happen in our lives, we have to have a reason for pressing on. And if we're going to have a reason for pressing on, it's got to be big enough to account for all the little things that happen in our lives. The problem with us sometimes is that we pick as goals in our lives puny goals that cannot account for the various things that happen. Let me give you an example. 
uh, a common one. Say, my goal in life is to be successful. And you say, well, that's not a puny goal. That's a big goal. No. It's puny in this way. If my whole goal in life is to be successful, whatever that happens to mean to me, and whatever that happens to mean to you, if I actually attain my goal and become successful, what is likely to happen? Either I'm unsatisfied, oh, this is it, this is what I aimed for, or I'm extraordinarily proud and arrogant at what I've achieved, and I'm, I become the kind of person no one wants to be around because I'm looking down my nose at everybody else because I'm successful, right? Or, right, I become so anxious and worried that I have to keep up my success that I can't enjoy my success anyway, right? If my goal is successful and I attain it, it it's not, that's not a big enough goal even to contain success itself. Do you understand what I'm saying? If I try to aim at success and I don't achieve it, what's likely to happen? Despair. Life's not even worth living. I, I didn't even, the one thing that I was going after, I didn't get. So I'm, I might as well throw in the towel, right? Same thing if you put riches there or wealth or if you put, even if you put relationships there. Any goal besides the goal Paul's talking about is too puny to handle even the achievement of the goal. And it's really too puny to handle the failure to achieve the goal. But notice, if your goal in life is to know Jesus Christ in all of his glory and in all of his suffering, you will be able to take account of both the highs and the lows. If I'm successful, I can say, oh, Lord, thank you that you have blessed me with something I did not deserve. But this success is just a tiny little, little portion of a taste of what it means to achieve the success of knowing you. This little bitty success I have now is just a little hors d'oeuvre of the glory you've promised me in heaven where I will see Jesus face to face. When I fail to achieve my little goals and I want nevertheless to know Jesus, I will be able to say, Lord Jesus, thank you even for this suffering because in this suffering I know a little bit more about how you suffered for me. In my suffering, Jesus, I know more intimately what it was like to be you in your pursuit of sinners like me. I know what it's like to taste disappointment and betrayal and all those other things, pain. You see, Paul had the right goal and so therefore he was able to press on. He understood what his life was really supposed to be all about. Little goals are good. It's okay. I mean, it's okay to want to be successful as long as it's a lowercase g goal. Because trust me, you might not reach that goal. And even if you do reach it, you might not enjoy it. You might not enjoy it. You probably won't enjoy it for a variety of reasons. But if Jesus is your goal, success and riches and relationships and family and all the rest can find their proper place. This morning, I wonder, if you're having a hard time following Jesus, I wonder, where is your goal How would you describe the capital G, number one goal of your life? Would you be able to take the words of Paul on your lips honestly and just say simply, I want to know Christ? The ups and the downs, the ins and the outs, I just want to know Jesus, all of him for all of me. 
first thing. Now, secondly, this morning, we see that we've got to know the real me. And Paul understood this very well. One of the things I love about Paul, and one of the reasons I love that Paul wrote most of the New Testament, is that he's encouraging to me in that he has a very accurate, sober understanding of himself. Um, Paul is not what most people typically think of when they think of Christians. Um, Whether we like it or not, a lot of people tend to view us as Christians as people who are good at pretending. In fact, a lot of people think that's what all this is about this morning, is that it's just a group of people who get together and encourage one another to pretend they're better than they are. (laughs) And so we tell each other, hey, we're good, right? We're the good guys, right? And we get all excited about encouraging one another in that. We, We get excited about pretending we're better than everybody else when we leave this place. A lot of people think that. Whether it's true or not, that's that's what a lot of people think. And yet, I want to tell you, even if it is true of some Christians and of some in church, it's not true of Christ. And the number one exhibit A that I would present to you is the man that God used, the man that Christ used to write most of the New Testament. He is not a man who is prone to pretending about anything. He is very sober about looking at his life and looking at the world and saying, this is what it's like. And yet he's able to look at it honestly and not get discouraged by it, or at least not overwhelmed with discouragement about it. Look at what he says about himself. Not that I have already obtained this, verse 12. Or that I have already arrived at my goal. But... I'm simply a man who is pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. And then he comes right back around to his first thought. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself to have yet taken hold of it. Paul understands he hasn't arrived. He's not perfect. And he actually doesn't expect to reach perfection yet in this life. He doesn't expect that. What he expects is a life of pressing Which, you know, pressing to me, to press on says something a little bit deeper than just move on. You know, move on is just like, well, I'm going to forget that and just kind of barely, barely mosey mosey along, right? It, It expresses a kind of relaxation with things. Pressing is not relaxation. It's, it's hard work. It's, you're fighting your way forward. You know, it's almost like violent in a way. You're pressing Paul is a man who's able to say, here is who I am. I'm not happy with all that I am. I'm not happy with where I'm at fully. But I'm not discouraged by where I am because God has given me the gift to violently press forward with Jesus, to continue to fight. Because I know, based on the pattern of Jesus' life, cross comes before crown. And the pattern of the whole Bible. Wilderness comes before promised land. In David's case, hiding in a cave comes before becoming the king of Israel. Like I know the way God works with folks. And so I understand that right now I'm in the cave stage or the wilderness stage or the cross stage. Having to violently press forward with Jesus. Having to work hard and fight to grow as a Christian, but I'm not discouraged by that because I know just from the story of Jesus, resurrection follows suffering. If I share in his sufferings now, 
I understand I'm going to share in his glory later. Paul has a view of the real me. Christians do not have to pretend. Do you hear me? Christians do not have to pretend. That's not what we're about. That's not what we should be about. We should be about realistically looking in the mirror at where we are spiritually and being willing to admit it, but yet not be discouraged by it because God's at work. And the way that God typically works is to pull us through difficulty first and struggle first before we reach glory. In fact, um, there are two... (laughs) There are two key things in what he says there in verses uh, 12 and 13 that I want to highlight for you really, really briefly. Two things that he always remembers, it seems, in his life. And you need to remember it too. First of all, who laid hold of who first? This is so important. Um, You you will (laughs) never, I will never, you will never be able to handle the struggles with sin, temptation, weakness in your life if you don't remember who laid hold of who first. Paul says, I love this, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already taken hold of me. Do you see that? He took hold of me first. Long ago, he took hold of me. He took hold of me at the cross. He took hold of me when I met him on that road to Damascus and he appeared and convicted me of my sin and and caused me to repent and to put my trust in him. He took hold of me. Why? So that now I could spend all of my life seeking to take hold of the thing that he took hold of me for, which is to know him in all of his glory, to know the heavenly father as my father, to aim my life not at merely earthly goals, but heavenly goals. I strive to take hold of what he already took hold of me first. Grace precedes obedience. You got that? To be saved by grace comes before the call to obey God. Grace precedes growth. Getting this backwards is the number one way to not be able to move on as a Christian. The number, if you want to know how to stall out this morning and not grow and not progress, do this. Think that God's grace depends on your obedience rather than the other way around. But if you understand God's grace came to you long before you ever obeyed, in fact, long before you ever could obey, that will actually set your heart free and give you motivation to want to obey, which is what God has, in fact, called you to do. You got to remember who took hold of who first. But the second thing that Paul remembers is he always knows what time it is. And this is what I was getting at just a second ago. He always knows what time it is. He understands that he's living in the time of cross. He's living in the time of wilderness. He's living in the period of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. He's not confused about this. Um, perfectionists. Do we have anybody in here? who tends to be a perfectionist. A less flattering word is control freak. Any one of y'all in here like myself at times? We have got to learn how to die to that, to put that aside. To be a Christian in this world is to admit and know that everything is not going to be settled yet within your heart. 
Sin's going to be there. Temptation's going to knock. Temptation's going to still sound sweet sometimes to you. This is not a reason to just say, oh, well, fine, I'll just, you know, I won't care then. No, that's not, not what I'm saying. I'm saying you've got to know that that's the reality that God has ex- specifically left in your life in order to teach you how to struggle with Jesus. Because it's God's will that his people enter resurrection the same way his son entered resurrection. On the road of the cross. On the road of suffering. In fact, that's the only way to, to get there. You can't get to, there is no alternate route. And there is no toll route that you can pay for. <laughs> There's only one road that leads to resurrection, that leads to the kingdom of God. And that's the road of suffering and struggle. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the Old Testament story of the Exodus is... Moses says to the Israelites, you're going to go in, you're going to take out all these people, and you're going to possess the land, but you're not going to take them out all at once. I'm going to leave some of them there, and you're going to take them out little by little so that my people might learn warfare. Why did God do that? I mean, I think it's just as an example to us. He doesn't take all the sin out. He doesn't take all the struggle out all at once. He doesn't heal all the diseases in a, in a moment. He lets them sit for a while, some of them at least, so that we would learn how to press. So that we would always have to remember, God took hold of me first. It must be that he took hold of me first because look at how I still am. Even still, after all these years as a Christian, I still don't deserve his grace. Do you see that? Paul, this is what Paul means by, I want everybody who is mature to think this way. I want you to have this same view of things. You have to understand what time it is. You have to understand who took hold of who first. You've got to be willing to look at the real you as a Christian. Pretending will get you nowhere. Uh, do you struggle with grace in your life? Do you struggle believing that Jesus took hold of you before you ever earned it? Well, spend some time. Thinking about that. Spend some time talking to God about that. Asking him to convince you about that. Maybe you struggle with timing. Maybe you're a perfectionist and you just can't get over the fact that you're not all the way perfect yet. Spend some time remembering all the ways that God has dealt with all of his people. Paul wasn't perfect. Moses wasn't perfect. David wasn't perfect. Peter wasn't perfect. You go right on down the list. Do you think God's going to do differently with you? Do you think you're that exceptional? I don't think we are. All right, that's second. Lastly, uh, Paul helps us see the one pursuit. The one pursuit. And, and here is something that's kind of brings us back to our original point. Uh, in, the, in, in the movie, in, in Canto, everybody's struggling to move on from the past. Everybody's struggling with fear of the future. And because of that, they, they don't know how to live in the present. Uh, and isn't that so often true? Isn't it often true that we get caught in the past either because we think of it as the glory days that we just want to get back to, we're, we're pining over it, or we get caught in the past because I've done something terrible in the past and I can't get over the guilt and shame of it? 
Or maybe we, we're always stuck in the future. I can't wait till this happens. I can't wait till I get my driver's license. I can't wait till I get married. I can't wait till I have kids. I can't wait till the kids move out of the house. I can't wait. You know, we're always looking forward to the next big milestone. Or the fear that can overwhelm us because of the future. What if this happens? What if that happens? Sometimes we're so obsessed with past and future, we don't even know what to do with now. It's a mark of maturity to know how to handle time with Jesus. It's a mark of maturity to know how to handle time. You know, when you ask a kid about time, a real little kid, like my um, four-year-old, for example, like if you say to him, we'll go tomorrow, he doesn't understand. In fact, he'll, he'll say, what's tomorrow? When is tomorrow? Or if you say, Christmas is next week, which we, had, which we had to do before Christmas. He was always asking, when's Christmas? Next week. What's next week? He has no idea, you know, and, and, and everything in the past is yesterday to him. You know, we, we may have done something a year ago, and he'll say, we did that yesterday. Because a, a child's mind at a young age doesn't know how to handle time yet. They haven't reached that stage of growth. Spiritually speaking, some of us are still like that. We don't know how to handle time. We're caught in the past. We're obsessing over the future. We, some of us maybe don't even think about either. We're just living by the seat of our pants in the moment. We don't even know how to soberly look at the past or the future. We're all messed up. But look at how Paul models it. Verse 13 and 14. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Here's my one pursuit. Forgetting what is behind past, straining toward what is ahead, future, I press on, present, toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. A mature way of handling time with Jesus. To summarize what Paul says, Paul submits every single part of his calendar to Jesus his Lord. He submits his past to Jesus so that Jesus can do whatever he wants with it. He submits his future to Jesus so that Jesus can do whatever he wants with it. He submits his present to Jesus so that Jesus can do whatever he wants with him right now. He forgets what's behind. He strains to what's ahead and he spends his present moment pressing, 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 pressing. Applying himself diligently to all the things God has called him to do now so that he can grow in character and grow in knowledge and grow in love and grow in faith. When Paul says he forgets the past, I don't think we're supposed to take him super literally there. I mean, you know, it's not really possible to fully forget the past. In fact, it's not really even desirable to fully forget it. I think what Paul is doing is he's using the word as a way to express he doesn't let the past imprison him. It's as if he's forgotten it, right? He's not saying he actually has forgotten it. We know he hadn't because he's always talking about this, his story. I mean, every time we turn around, he's telling his testimony. He's telling what he was in the past. He hasn't forgotten it, but he does not let it imprison him. He's not caught in the cycles of guilt and shame because he's brought his past to Jesus. And he's allowed Jesus to wash his past with his blood, to forgive him for his past. 
He doesn't look back at the past as the glory days because he's given his past to Jesus. And he knows from Jesus, your past really isn't glorious. You thought it was, but it's not. It's not what you thought it was. Paul strains towards the future. It's not that he's overwhelmed with fear about the future or anxiety about the future. Uh, He's not um, simply wanting to fast forward through the present so that he can live in the future. He's simply straining towards it. He sees it. He calls it a goal that's out there, a, a prize that God has placed in heaven that he's called to work his way towards. The end zone. That he's playing the game in the present to reach one day. That's the way Paul thinks about the future. Because he's brought the future to Jesus. And when you bring your future to Jesus, that's what will happen. You won't obsess over what might happen or what will happen or how you know, can I fast forward through my life so that I can get to that thing that I want to happen. Instead, what you'll see is Jesus, in my future, there is the promise fulfilled. The promise fulfilled. And between now and that day when I reach the end zone, A whole lot of things may happen that I don't want to happen. But I'm straining towards the end zone. And anything that happens to me along the way, I'll hand to you when I get there. But I know that one day, by your grace, I'm going to get there. Pay dirt. The promised land. Heaven. The prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. It's a mark of maturity to know how to handle time. And when you know how to handle the past and you know how to handle the future with Jesus, you'll know how to handle the present. Paul has one pursuit in his life. I want to know Christ, he says. I press on toward the goal for which God has called me. This relationship, this union and communion that I have with Jesus, this ability to Use the gifts God has given me to glorify God and to serve him in my life. Don't you want that? Uh, this, this is what we uh, read about at the beginning of the service that F.F. F. Bruce said about Paul. He had the heart set free. And because he had a heart set free, he was compelled by Jesus' love and empowered by Jesus' spirit to do the will of God from the heart. He lived in the moment, but he didn't just live by the seat of his pants. He lived by the grace and the commandment of his Lord and Savior. Do you see it? If in the first week we saw Moses, and what we saw in Moses is you have to, you have to get away from wanting God's stuff and wanting God himself. And then if last week we saw Ezra and we saw how in Ezra we have to devote ourselves to knowing God through his word because that's the only way we really can assuredly know him this week here's what we see we've got to remember that all of our lives belong to Jesus but the reverse of that is all of Jesus belongs to us and so the one worthy pursuit just like Moses just like Ezra just like Paul is that I may know him all of him suffering and resurrection so that I may press. Let's pray together.